Hello and welcome to the Victorian Gas Lamp, the podcast shining a warm light on the 19th century and most notably throughout the reign of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Episode 44, That's a Red Flag. Charles, the protagonist of this episode, was born in 1832. His father, William, was a reverend in Norfolk and married to Georgiana. Charles was fortunate enough to be an educated boy attending boarding school in Blackheath in London. Charles had dreams of joining the military and in 1848 he went to the Royal Military Academy. That dream lasted one year because in 1849 he was discharged when he failed an exam. And that must have been hard to deal with. I mean, he had this dream of being in the military, probably loved the uniform and the social respect that comes with it, and was now booted out because he couldn't make the grade. The struggle is real, dear listeners. So, the following year, his parents bought him a commission as an officer in the 39th Foot, which was an infantry unit for £450. Because money always talks. And now I do get to do an aside. Nice segue, me. I first heard of the concept of buying a commission when reading Pride and Prejudice. It was in Jane Austen's classic, that the horrible Mr. Wickham talks about having bought a commission in the local military. My basic understanding was that he paid a sum of money to get into the army as an officer, which goes with the assumption of there being the perks of being a supervisor and not just a worker, so to speak. And that's basically what happened. If you had money, you got to basically be in charge with no training and no experience. With our modern thoughts that a meritocracy is the best way to create a successful business or military force, the first instinct is to object to this commission-buying practice. So to have the ability to just buy your way in and jump to the big table naturally sits a little wrongly. But this is a, well, vaguely historical podcast, so I do have to consider the time and place that this was occurring with the applicable social values of the time. Socially, this was seen as acceptable. The value was placed on the fact that they did have to pay for the commission, and the £450 spent was a lot of money, and it only got you a second lieutenancy. So you were a low rung on the officer ladder but you were seen as being someone that had invested your own money in the defence of the nation. Additionally, because you had bought your commission, your rank was not beholden to the king or queen. They couldn't take it away from you. Therefore, you were less likely to be manipulated into being used against the general populace. And that perception meant a lot. So we do need to remember that. If you had paid a truckload of cash for your job, you're invested in it. You're going to try your best and hopefully keep those under you alive. 
the price increased depending on the rank obtained. The average military wage at the time was around £50 a year, so even a lower officer position like second lieutenant, at the cost of £450, was an expensive proposition. But you had to start here. You couldn't buy a higher rank, this just got you in the door, so to speak. And once you were in, there were terms of service that you needed to complete before being able to move up. Paying that £450 meant that it would be three years before you could try and pay for a captaincy, and then major for seven and nine for a colonelcy, and the last was around £4,000 or so, which was an incredible amount of money. The higher levels after that were based only on merit, so money only got you so far, fortunately. The other aspect to this was that there were only limited positions. You might be a captain, be eligible for, and wanting to be a major, but unless there was a position available, you couldn't buy it. But if you wanted out of the military, you could sell your spot. In this way, it gave you an automatic payout slash pension from leaving, which meant the government didn't think they should have to pay you anything, so this was basically all you got when you left. Now, that all said, and meritocracy triggering action it may have been, there was another aspect to this. As much as I do love the Victorian era, with all its civility and stylish clothing, the fact remains that social class structures were very firmly entrenched. In many ways, regardless of the money you might have, the fact was you were working class and you couldn't rise above it. If you were born into the upper classes, even if you didn't have money, your social status was a currency that could be traded with access to connections that 99% of the population had no chance of being in the same room with, let alone associating as equals. But being an officer in the military did get you that ticket in. You were automatically considered to be a gentleman and had a level of respectability that would have otherwise been impossible to attain. This social status was given to members of the church, such as Charles's father, but also to those that practiced law or medicine. But the highest status came with being in the military. And there is a strong argument for paying that commission if your only chance at making a better life for yourself was to pay a great deal of money and you had access to it, I think most of us would probably take the deal. After all, you then gained an enviable position on the critical social ladder in a world where climbing that ladder was incredibly difficult. You could literally set up your family for generations to come. And in a society as socially restricted as that of the Victorian era, that's something that you really had to try and take advantage of, if you could. So, I guess we're going to have to let Charles off on that one. But, that's your only break, mate, because the storm is coming.
Shortly after joining his regiment, Charles and the regiment were transferred to Belfast in Ireland, and then later to Dublin. Charles obviously enjoyed his time on the Green Isle because he married an Irish lass, one Anne Dunn, in 1852. He had some sort of illness during this time and decided to sell his commission in the 39th and gain that little nest egg, but then stayed in country and leased a farm in the county of Tipperary. 1854 found Charles living on Akill Island. Situated off the west coast of Ireland, he moved here for two reasons. One, he received a tidy inheritance, and secondly, a friend, one Murray McGregor Blacker, agreed to sublet 2,000 acres of land on the island to him. Life here wasn't easy, though. Charles reportedly didn't get along with the locals for a long time. This included a lawsuit for assault from one local. In his defence, while the man claimed that Charles owed him money and had physically threatened him when he refused to pay it, it came out later on that Charles in fact owed him nothing. But he did make his life on the island and in addition to making money on his lands, he received more inheritance money from another family member. So, in 1873, he moved back to the Irish mainland and settled in County Mayo. It was here that he met the very wealthy John Crichton, the third Earl of Erne. The Earl owned over 40,000 acres of land in various counties. Charles must have impressed the Earl because he was offered a job. Aside from being in direct control of 1,500 acres for the Earl, Charles was also responsible for collecting rents from the tenants on the Earl's properties. And for this work, he received around £500 a year. Quite the nice side earning. But that acrimonious quality to his personality that had set off the locals on Akil Island was still there, and tenants on the properties didn't like him. He had withdrawn privileges, such as collecting wood from the estates, wanted all of the gates closed all of the time, and didn't like chickens roaming around. All sounds petty and annoying, until I add that he would fine those people for these trivial transgressions. I mentioned back in the episode on the Irish Famine that many of the lands in Ireland were owned by Englishmen, and even amongst the Irish landholders, many of them were pretty much never there, relying on agents like Charles to take care of business and collect the money owed. And while not all of them were absentees, it does bear keeping in mind that pretty much all of the land in Ireland was owned by just 0.2% of the population. So 750 men owned the entire country between them, and that's in a country of around 5 to 6 million people. The leases on the lands were usually for just one year, and even if they paid their rent, they could still be evicted. Over the decades in the 1800s, there had been a number of attempts to get rights for the farmers, which were actually the largest voting bloc in the country. They wanted the three Fs, fair rent, fixity of tenure, and free sale. The first is self-explanatory, 
the second concerned rights against eviction if rent had been paid, and the latter was that ability to sell their interest in working the applicable property without landlord interference. This social cause was a fight that was continuing into 1880 when a local MP, Charles Purnell, gave a speech on the 19th of September to the Land League against the tenants who might bid for a farm when someone had been evicted. Despite the crowd saying such men should be shot or killed, Purnell gave the following reply. Quote, I wish to point out to you a very much better way, a more Christian and charitable way, which will give the lost man an opportunity of repenting. When a man takes a farm from which another has been evicted, you must shun him on the roadside when you meet him. You must shun him in the streets of the town. You must shun him in the shop. You must shun him on the fair green and in the marketplace and even in the place of worship by leaving him alone, by putting him in moral Coventry. By isolating him from the rest of the country as if he were the leper of old, you must show him your detestation of the crime he has committed. End quote. So rather than resort to violence, Purnell had just locked and loaded the Land League's biggest weapon, ostracism. And it was in that September of 1880 that the Earl of Erne had his rents due. The Earl was not blind to the difficult situation the farmers found themselves in with a bad harvest. He had offered a 10% reduction in rents due to the lower income. But all, excepting two of them, were asking for a 25% reduction. Charles told the tenants that he had written to the Earl, but that the 10% reduction stood. Charles then began the process of issuing demands for rent and also issued 11 eviction notices. Just three days after Parnell's speech, a process server and his aides began serving the eviction notices. Now, by law, these had to be served to the head of the house or their spouse. In the case of the fourth serving, to one Mrs. Fitzmorris, things got, well, kind of epic. This amazing woman refused to take the notice and standing outside her home waved a red cloth to let others nearby know that notices were being issued. And I do wonder if that's where the term red flag came from. This resulted in other women coming forward and pelting the servers with stones and manure, successfully driving them away. Attempts to serve the notices the next day were unsuccessful, and then, according to local journalist James Redpath, Charles started losing staff, apparently as they were under the threat of some sort of retribution by the tenants. Soon enough, all of Charles's employees were gone, leaving him to run the estate by himself. Shortly thereafter, the local blacksmith, laundry and postal service all stopped serving Charles. Shopkeepers in the local town stopped serving him too. Charles complained to the Times newspaper of all of this, stating that his people had been threatened into not working for him. 
Additionally, people began walking through his property with no concern for him, smashing locks on now open gates, taking crops and ruining others, as well as herding his livestock out onto the roads. The crops he had remaining, worth a year's salary to him, were ruined as no one would work for him. And yet Charles himself remained untouched. He refused to leave the property as he did not want to desert the Earl, and also his own financial status was tied to the lands. Making news in all the papers now, no doubt to the consternation of other landlords and landowners, an 1800s GoFundMe raised some £2,000 to support Charles. Hundreds also volunteered to go help Charles, but this was viewed as an invasion force by the Chief Secretary of Ireland, who stated that he would only allow 50 men to help with the harvest. So the crop was harvested, but it was only in November that Charles and his family knew that they had to leave. They were escorted by a military force, but no driver could be found for their carriage, and so an army ambulance and driver were used. Arriving in Dublin where they intended to stay for a week, they were strongly advised to keep moving, and so cutting their stay short, they headed to England. It was later reported that it had cost the government £10,000 to harvest those crops for Charles, who had also lost around £6,000 in his investments in the property that he had been running. With such initial success, Irish protesters continued this ostracism act against other dodgy landlords and landowners. By now, the Kingdom's Prime Minister, William Gladstone, was involved and in April of the next year, 1881, the Land Law Ireland Act was established, setting those three Fs into legal status. And the laws of Ireland had been changed forever. Charles and his family travelled to the United States for a while before returning to England, where he lived until 1897, when his health declined and he died at age 65. During the years following the debacle, Charles did make trips back to Ireland and apparently held no animosity towards the locals. He was by now using his middle name as his surname, so as Charles Cunningham, most people wouldn't have known who he was. But his original surname? Well, as early as October 1880, it was being used as a descriptive verb for what had happened. Because Charles Cunningham was always Charles, but he had started life as a boycott. And leaving you on that total dad joke that was actually a real thing, I do want to add a little housekeeping. Firstly, it is great to be back. I am sorry it has taken so long to get episodes back out to you again i am incredibly grateful for your patience but they are coming and also a listener reached out to me this week about how they were introduced to the podcast one of their teachers is apparently a big fan and loves listening to it and introduced her class to my little podcast for that dear teacher i am eternally grateful this email did come from the rebellious colonies but we can let that one slide in this case i think 
Vermont is, from what I have seen, a beautiful state among the United Ones. So, at the moment, I am imagining a class sitting there going, hang on, Heath just said Vermont. Well, yes, I did. And specifically to a teacher who clearly enjoys inspiring their students. And yes, I'm looking at you, Jenny Bully of Vermont. One of your students asked for a shout out for you. So, here it is. A very Merry Christmas to you, Jenny, and to your students. And if you haven't already discovered who did this to you, it was totally Siana. <laughs> and on that note, I do wish everyone who listens a wonderful Christmas time, whether you celebrate it or not. It's a time to spend with loved ones and enjoy those around us. I'll be back early in the new year with more episodes. And as I said, sorry it's taken so long to get back. And this time... For Jenny and Sienna and all of their schoolmates, here endeth the episode. You can find me at victoriangaslamp.com. My contact details are on there as well. And you can follow me on Twitter at VicGaslamp. And more importantly, on Instagram, where I post historical facts and trivia as well as photos related to the episodes. I am at victoriangaslamp, or one word, there as well. Thanks for listening and keep a lookout for new episodes. And as always, I'll see you next time under the gas lamp.